Hello, everybody. Welcome to Crystal Kylan, friends. A uh, lot of great stuff to talk about today. We have an amazing guest, Abby Martin. Yeah. Who, uh, you know, is basically the expert's expert on the issue of Israel-Palestine. I mean, I would say she's probably an expert on, like, all stuff foreign policy related, but uh, definitely on Israel-Palestine. She made an incredible documentary that everybody needs to check out. We'll probably talk a little bit about that um, when she's on. But before we get to that, there's a lot of other stuff to talk about as well. So um, a few things in the news this week that caught my eye that uh, I've sort of been obsessed with. Mm -hmm. One of them is there's a... There's this pipeline that Trump put sanctions on the people trying to build this pipeline. Mm -hmm. And the name of the pipeline is the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Right. It's supposed to go from Russia to Germany. And the idea behind it is that, you know, Russian natural gas is going to be used in Germany. Right. And so they were working on a deal, the German government and the Russian government. And, you know, I'm sure there's private business involved in all that stuff. But Trump sanctioned them. Now, this is part of a pattern with Trump, where he actually was pretty hawkish when it comes to Russia, and he would raise tensions with Russia. He did it in a number of different ways. Like, for example, he armed uh, Ukrainian rebels, who, by the way, were affiliated with neo-Nazi groups. So, like, shouldn't be arming those people. That goes without saying. But he armed them because they were fighting Russia. He also bombed Syria, which is one of Russia's top allies in the region. I can go on and on with the things he did that were hawkish against Russia. But, of course, the narrative in the mainstream media was that he's Putin's puppet. Right. Well, in comes Biden. Biden decided... I'm going to waive the sanctions on the people building that pipeline. Now, the media is describing the people who are building that pipeline as, and I quote, Putin's buddies. So this is Joe Biden saying no sanctions for Putin's buddies. So it's the opposite of a hawkish approach with Russia. It's a very dovish approach with Russia. And it's him saying, you know what? Whatever goes on between Russia and Germany is Russia and Germany's business. So go ahead and let them do whatever they're going to do. Now, my position is I actually totally agree with Joe Biden. Right. I think it's the right thing to not sanction whoever's building this pipeline and to not get involved in the affairs of Russia and Germany. But having said that, you and I both know that if Trump did this exact same policy, the media would have said, smoking gun, we got him. He's right. obviously Vladimir Putin's, Putin's puppet. puppet. Giant yeah. gift to Russia. Giant gift to Russia, exactly. Yeah. And so it's Useful just. idiot, Kremlin stooge. The all that hypocrisy stuff. of it drives me crazy. And, you know, of course, with the media, now all of a sudden, what Biden did, there's nothing wrong with it. It's a great thing. What do right. you mean? It's wonderful. Right. Or, or at least, to be fair, they didn't really say it. They don't say anything they about just it. Don't, they just don't report talk it as, it. like, here are the facts of what happened. Yeah, which but is how you should always report it. But it, it. should have been like that under <laughs> Trump, too. And it wouldn't have been like that under Trump. It would have been, oh my God, he's Putin's puppet. They would have spun it to do to make that argument argument. And so it just it just drives me crazy how there's no consistency, there are no principles. It's just endless hypocrisy and everybody part of the mainstream dialogue in the media is just insufferable. Yeah. Well, and that's the part of this that's really important is it's it's more of a media story than it is yes. a mm -hmm. Joe Biden story. I mean, it's important to know from a foreign mm -hmm. policy perspective how he's approaching these things, etc. But yeah, they were very invested in this narrative during the Trump presidency of he's doing Russia's bidding. Yep. So anything that fit that narrative would get front page headline treatment would be added to the list of things. And most of what he was doing that was friendly to Russia was rhetorical. Most of it exactly. wasn't based in policy. It was more rhetorical than anything else. And so that was how they created that narrative, even though oftentimes the facts didn't actually really fit the narrative. And so you can see how 
part of what the media does in order to manufacture the portrait that they want to portray to the American people and manufacture consent is just by the emphasis that they place on certain stories. So if you've heard about like him saying something nice about Putin, that sticks in your mind of like, oh, obviously he's like super nice to Putin and wants to bend over backwards for this guy. What is what does Putin have on him, et cetera, et cetera. And then when Biden comes along and they treat it like a very like the normal way that they should treat it and it's a neutral or it just doesn't get coverage at all, then it creates a very different impression of the reality of how these two presidents approach foreign policy. They drove me crazy because they actually ignored the hawkish stuff Trump was doing against Russia. And it's funny because I come full circle on it where I'm like, I want you to attack Trump but I want you to attack him from the exact the opposite right perspective. Yes. They're attacking him as if you're too soft on Russia. Er, why don't you get more aggressive against mm. another nuclear armed power? Er, right. that's their argument. <laughs> right. And I'm sitting there like he is being aggressive against them and he shouldn't be. And your argument should be the opposite. Your argument should be, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why are you arming Ukrainian neo-Nazis? Right. Because they're fighting Russians. Right. That's a good reason. Stop arming neo you. If the media had their shit together, they could have done their anti-Trump shit all day long, but it would have been stuff like, he's arming neo-Nazis in Ukraine. This is fucking crazy. Well, and this has massive consequences, because if you look at polls now of how Democrats feel about Russia, it's completely changed. Oh, I that's mean, true. And it's led to a much more hawkish sentiment among the Democratic base, and that's really a bad thing, not to mention all of the horrific people that they elevated in the media yep. in order to make this case that, like, Russia is our great enemy and we've got to do everything to stop Russia. Remember back when Mitt Romney made some yes, comment about Russia? that's what I was going to bring up next. In the debates of, with Obama. He said they're our number like, one enemy. And, and everyone was like, was ridiculous. No, Obama, Obama made said, fun of him. Yeah. What Obama said is the 1980s called they want their foreign policy back. Yes. And it was a huge, <laughs> it was during a debate and the audience exploded like, ah, oh, yeah, you wrecked him. You own stupid yeah. Mitt Romney, fucking Russia. It's not 1983, dick. Yeah. <laughs> and, but no, but that honestly, that's a way to checkmate a lot of these elites is to be like, listen, uh, my position on the issue is exactly the same position as Barack Obama. Right. Because there was rhetoric back in the Obama era of like, I think they called it like the reset or something. You want to do like mm -hmm. a reset with Russia. Remember and like get Hillary back to Clinton an and the footing. button said, was supposed to say reset, but they got the Russian translation wrong. You don't remember that. I don't, but that sounds hilarious. Yeah. What it was, did it say? Like it butt was cheeks or something? I, I'll look it up. I'll look it up. Keep the button talking, was supposed to say up. reset, but it said tiny little dick. <laughs> it, was, it was not quite that awkward, but it was a little bit awkward. Awkward. Yeah, well, uh, I to this day, my my take is I 100 percent agree with Barack Obama's approach to Russia. And um, when you make that point, it is sort of like a checkmate to the liberal elites who love Obama, but somehow are very hawkish on Russia. So you know was, what I mean, it was supposed to say reset, but it actually said overload. <laughs> <laughs> that is so close to my joke, like butt cheeks, tiny little dicks. Giant loads. <laughs> it's, it's like a little bit of a stretch, but yeah there's, yeah, there's definitely a continuum there that I can see for sure. That is so funny. That And by the way, that's a perfect microcosm of like how competent U.S. empire is. Yeah. And then Hillary Clinton, of course, turns around and, bees, and is like the greatest Russia gator of all time because it serves her interest because it lets her off the hook for being the most proximate reason why we ended up with the monster of Donald Trump for four years. That's why they pushed it. They pushed it I because know. it absolved her of doing anything wrong in the campaign. It absolved all of them yep. of any <laughs> sort of me. culpability. Number one, all of Trump's people are just bad people. They're deplorables and they're irredeemables. And number two, Vladimir Putin 
it fucked with the vote and got him in office. Yeah, so I all, did nothing wrong. They're like, that's all the argument. bad people, even though some of them voted for us last time. But let's not talk about that. There were a scary high <laughs> number of Obama to Trump voters. That's what people don't want to acknowledge. Was, I mean, it was it was a difference maker. Like, you know, when you're talking about a close race, a few percentage points, that was that was all it took. But they didn't yeah. want to talk about that whatsoever. No, although to be fair, Van Jones did a good segment on CNN. I don't know if he still has his show, but he had a show on CNN where mm -hmm. he brought on the people who were the Obama to Trump voters. And he gave them a sympathetic ear. And most of them are exactly like you would expect. People in the Rust Belt, all their jobs were outsourced. And they were yeah. like, when Obama ran, he'd talk about, I'm going to stop the outsourcing. So we voted for him. And then when Trump ran, he said, I'm going to stop all the outsourcing. So we voted for him. And it was really that simple for a lot of them. Yeah. You know? To be fair, I think they had to overlook a lot of other horrible stuff that Trump said and did, of course. Absolutely. But when that's their main issue... They were, you could see why they would think the way they were thinking. You yeah. Know? Well, and probably the reaction to that segment from Van Jones was like total outrage of like. I don't remember. I know I covered I, it on my show, but I don't remember what the reaction was. Yeah, like. because there was a consistent theme of any time you gave voice to those people who flipped their votes. It was like, oh, why do you only care about these people? Like well, it's the economic anxiety. Economic thing, right? anxiety. Yeah. Give oh, me a here break. We go. They, yeah. they show a picture of like a Klan rally and they're like, here's some economic anxiety for you. Right. Right. Because that's the argument we well, were making. Well, and is based off economic and those design. are the most those are the most uncomfortable and inconvenient people for the narrative that they're just all deplorable racists right. because the they, most, they literally sure. voted for the black guy and then we're like mm, twice right. twice exactly right. right um so tell me about you i believe you have this story in front of you yes so there's been this hullabaloo recently i can't believe i just said that word what am i 89 <laughs> there's been this uh, there's been this poppycock lately yeah. of um <laughs> Golly gee. You have Fox News and even CNN and some of the outlets are saying, oh, my God, there's a labor shortage. Nobody wants to work anymore. Right. Michael Smirkanish asks, is the American work ethic dying? Ugh. And this is just a way of saying, Ugh. like, man, you guys are lazy. Now, the unemployment rate was 6%, and it went to 6.1%, and they're acting like 50% of the country was like, I don't want to work anymore, and I'm going to go lay on a beach and sip a mojito. But anyway, one of the things I said in, in response to that is, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, if you raise wages— People will go back to work. Yes. And tell me about the $15 minimum wage story. Indeed. Well, uh, there was an ice cream parlor, and MSNBC actually highlighted this, so I'll give them a like, tiny shred of credit here. Um, there was an ice cream parlor in Pittsburgh, local small business, raised their wage to $15 an hour, and they got over 1,000 applicants. The owner actually said he stopped counting at 1,000 applications wow. in one week. And... This is important not just because it proves the very obvious point that like, oh, if you want people to work for you, give them a situation that makes it worth their time, number one, like it proves that very obvious point. But also disproves one of the other narratives, at least in part, that like, um, and Stephanie Rule, who, who did the segment, pointed this out, like the, the ice cream shop is the stereotypical thing that conservatives will throw at you of like the local ice cream shop. There's no way mm, they're going to be able it. to pay yeah. mm -hmm. $15 an hour. And so this owner is like, no, actually, we can pay $15 an hour. We will pay $15 an hour. And because of that, we have this, you know, tremendous pool of workers to, to pull from. And by the way, as I mentioned, this is in. Pittsburgh, um, a city that I know somewhat about because I used to live uh, nearby. Pittsburgh was like the closest large city to where I lived in Ohio. And um, it's not a high cost of living place. So this isn't equivalent to like New York City mm -hmm. wages yeah. being at $15 an hour. This is a medium to small size city with a very reasonable cost of living where this small local small business feels like they can make it work paying $15 an hour. So let me ask you, did they raise it from 725 to 15 or was it like 
10 to 15? Do we I'm know? I'm not sure. Okay, so it didn't mention it in the story. Yeah, didn't didn't mention exactly but what the jump was. Over a thousand over a thousand applicants in one week. And Sounds so, like the American work ethic is dying. Well, and this is also like, again, actually a story of narrative setting. CEOs and the top really quarter of American society did phenomenally well last year. Nobody worries about that. But suddenly it's like maybe these $300 unemployment benefits are too generous and people are getting lazy. It's destroying the American work ethic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so the emphasis is always on how can we make life as brutal as possible to force people threaten them with poverty right. to have to mm -hmm. work for seven twenty-five an hour versus like it's so it's all stick. It's never like, hey, what if we actually made it so that people get health care and have good wages and have a union available to like what if we made working in America less of a hellish situation so that people would be more compelled to go back into the workforce. And the other thing that I'll say about this, which I think is, is really significant, and, and I've been tracking, I know you have been as well, how there is a little bit of a rethink of the relationship between employment and our jobs and our identity and, you know, happening throughout the country at every class level. Some of the people that you're talking about here, I mean, these are the people who were held up as like, oh, our essential workers, we love them so much. But then it was like, get back out there, risk your fucking life for seven twenty-five an hour. We're not giving you a pay raise. We're not doing the things that it would take to keep you safe from COVID. We'll just give you some meaningless pats on the head and expect you to get right back out there. And so the fact that you have a significant chunk of the population, like, I don't know if I want to go back to work in that frontline position, frontline, low wage, high risk position that I was at before. Maybe I'm going to adjust. Maybe I'm going to look for employment in a different sector. Like that makes all the sense in the world, honestly. So the response to this has been infuriating. So I watched a number of segments. I covered a bunch of them on Secular Talk. There were Fox News segments all day, every day, mm. basically saying like, you're paying people too much money between the stimulus checks and the and the child tax credit and the unemployment insurance. You're paying people too much. This is not okay. And now 21 states, Republican governors have said, the $300 extra state unemployment, yeah. gone. They got rid of it. Right. And so there's been so many segments where the, the position that they think is the duh position is like, obviously, cut the benefits and force them out there back into shitty low-wage jobs that they don't want to be at. Right. That's the duh position in corporate media. Like, if you dissent from that, they think you're fucking crazy. Right. Meanwhile, I'm going to go a step further. So, it's to me, it's not just about, hey, the narrative that they're pushing out there isn't really true. Because it's not. If unemployment was 6% and then it went to 6.1% and their narrative's, nobody wants to work. No, right. it would have to go from like 6% <laughs> to fucking 30% if you want to have some sort of argument, right? Right. So, I don't think it's true. But even if it were true, I'm okay with it. Yes. And here's why. What you're doing is you, if you give a sufficient amount in benefits, whether it's a stimulus check or whatever, let's mm -hmm. say a UBI check, mm -hmm. you're giving people freedom for the first time in their lives to think for a month or two, hey, what do I actually want to do with my life? What will give me meaning? What will give me joy? What will give me fulfillment? What do I actually want to do with my limited time on this planet? And so people stopping, thinking, reevaluating, and trying to make better life decisions is a wonderful thing. And the Republican position, without a doubt, is no, force them back into shitty, low-paying jobs. 
and I don't want to fucking hear another word of complaining about it. And you know what? This really gets back to something that Noam Chomsky has said a million times and other leftists have said a million times, which is it really looks like wage labor is not that different from chattel slavery. Mm. You have to, instead of being owned as a person, you're, you're renting your labor on the marketplace. And is there really that much of a difference between, say, owning a car, renting a car? Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, you're, what you're talking about is a concept of meaningful freedom. Yes. Not just yes. like the bullshit word, like, you're free in America. Well, actually, what you're trying to do on the Republican side is strip away people's freedom to make a meaningful choice about how they want to spend their time mm. and how they want to invest their identity and their hours. And it's wildly inconsistent with some other things that conservatives claim to believe, right? Like another thing that they claim to believe is that parents, and especially women, should have the ability, if they want, to be able to stay home and raise their kids. Mm -hmm. So they'll say that. And then they'll do nothing to make that choice a meaningful reality to anyone. And in fact, make it virtually impossible. They're, they're the first to add in the work requirements to any sort of benefit that's going to come from Great the state. Point. They're the first, of course, to strip any kind of unemployment benefits, making it very, very difficult for women to be able or men to meaningfully make a choice about whether they would like to be home more and spend more time raising their kids or be forced into this like low wage hell that is the reality for most Americans. So I think it's wildly inconsistent. I mean, not that conservatives have ever like really cared about being consistent in their philosophy, but those two things can't really coexist. And um, I just think all of the conversation around this is wildly disconnected and disingenuous with some other values that they claim to support. That's a great point. And also there's examples of that inconsistency that are even more direct. Like for example, when Trump was saying we want $2,000 stimulus checks, what was it? Like 40 or 50 uh, House Republicans yeah. were like, yes, and they signed on to right. it. Mm -hmm. And then now Biden did the 1400, which is less than the 2000, yeah. right? But 1400 plus 600 equals the 2000. So he was closer to the range of what Trump wanted. And he does it, and now all of a sudden, all the fake populists on the right, like Josh Hawley, yeah. are like, oh my, you can't, pff, what are you paying people so much money for? You were for the $2,000 check. Not only was he for it, he was leading the charge. That's right. Remember, he, yeah. he mm -hmm. and Bernie Sanders got together and were demanding $2,000 yep. checks under Trump. And then the minute Biden, Biden comes in and passes anything, then suddenly it's like, oh, you're being too generous and people are getting lazy and it's destroying the country. What a hollow existence it is to be that much of a partisan hack where you really don't believe anything. Anything. Nothing. Yeah. It's like, well, what, what are you doing? Are, it really, the whole reason you're in politics is to get your fucking fat, narcissistic face in front of the camera to be like, aren't I so wonderful because I'm me? Yeah. Nobody gives a fuck about you. Who gives a Why should anybody give a fuck about you? Stand for something. Believe in something. Well, and be and, consistent. And by the way, if you actually dig into the numbers of who is staying home and who is dropping out of the labor force entirely, it is mostly women. Um, because they're screwed over with childcare. I mean, the fact, and this was the one part that conservatives will talk about, the fact that schools have been shut down has forced people to turn their lives upside down. And so it's not as easy as just flipping a switch and getting right back into where you were because mm -hmm. you've had to turn your life upside down to essentially homeschool your kids for the year. Childcare centers have shut down. It takes a lot of money, something that Democrats actually do want to address, to be able to get your kids back into childcare. Let's do free childcare. And, and so, you know, again, it makes no sense from the, the Republican perspective. Um, there was one other story that I wanted to talk about this morning that I think is really important and uh, fits into what we're going to talk to Abby about as well. Um, obviously, I'm sure you guys have been following as we have the horrific, outrageous, 
war crimes, heartbreaking situation, especially what's happening in Gaza. There was one really encouraging um, action this week, though, which is that um, Gazans, Palestinians in Gaza, in the West Bank, and also in Israel came together for a massive general strike on Tuesday. And we're starting to get to some of the numbers about just how widespread um, the participation in that general strike was on Tuesday. This is from um, uh, Haaretz. It says the Israel Builders Association said Palestinian workers observed the strike. Only 150 of the 65,000 Palestinian construction workers coming to came to work in Israel. So 150 out of 65,000 Palestinian construction workers showed up to work. And just that one day of staying home cost the building industry $40 million. One person was quoted as saying, we can't build without them. So does that include, so I know it's Palestinians in the West Bank, uh, Palestinians in Gaza. Does it include Israeli Arabs? Yes. So this, and that's actually, that's what's so significant. And I think most of these construction workers are Arab Israelis. Um, right. And it's, it's. That's what's so significant here is that part of the apartheid regime in Israel is about separating those three groups of individuals. Right, saying so, you guys have it good. This, what are you talking about? We're not an apartheid state. Right, and trying yeah. to trying to divide those three groups so they don't see themselves as one cohesive movement. And so you have a regime. You know, if you're an, if you're a Palestinian living in Israel, you have certain political rights, even though you know you're subject to a range of basically Jim Crow style laws that keep you in second class or you third have it class. better than a Palestinian in Gaza. That's the point. hundred percent. Right, yeah. yeah. I mean, I shouldn't say hundred percent. It's still not good. As right, you can yeah. see in Sheikh Jarrah, where, you know, there are racist laws with regards to housing and who has property rights. Um, there has never once been an Arab part of a governing coalition. But, you know, the the apologists will run out and say, oh, but you can vote. You you have equal status, et cetera, et cetera. Very much like this sort of Jim Crow situation that exists in the United States. So that's that's the best of the situations. And that's Arab Israelis. Then you go to w the West Bank, where you have um, the nominal right to, you know, elect your own government. You have um, very little massive restrictions on your ability to move around. You have, of course, all these illegal settlements that have turned when people think of the West Bank. I think they tend to think of it as like a contiguous region. It's not no, the reality not. on the ground for Palestinians. It's more like a bunch of disconnected islands. They've seized Palestinian lands in order not only to build those settlements, but also to build hundreds of kilometers of highways that only the settlers yep. mm -hmm. can use. Well, that's why it's like an apartheid state. Yeah. So that's the West Bank. And then Palestinians in Gaza, it's horrific. You know, since 2007. Open air um, prison is what everybody calls it. Open air prison, active. total blockade, um, poison drinking water, barely have electrical electricity, you know, an hour or two on a day. Can't massive, get medical treatment. Massive poverty, massive hunger, reliant on international donations, zero political rights, you know, just constantly being hit by these uh, attacks and, you know, just outright murder, the number of children that have been killed, absolutely horrific. So that apartheid regime 
creates different daily existences in the lives of those three groups of Palestinians. And so the fact that all three groups came together in solidarity in this general strike, people who study the region say this is one of the most significant actions that's happened since 1936, when there was another historic six-month-long, um, longest in history, general strike to protest British colonial rule at that time. So they're putting it on the level of that type of mass action. And so the numbers that you see here show just how devastating it is because basically Israelis rely on Arabs to be the working class, to do the jobs they don't really want to do, the low paid labor. And so when those those essential workers say, we're out, we're not showing up, we're not cleaning your streets, we're not building your buildings, we're out, at least for this one day, it has a tremendous reverberation throughout the country. So a few things I want to say in response to that. Um, there's a question that I posed, you posed a version of it as well. Glenn Greenwald was the one who I originally got this from because yeah. I thought it was an amazing point. Ask somebody, ask somebody who's, you know, vociferously pro-Israel. How can Palestinians resist in a way that's acceptable to you? Right. If they do violence, you say it's terrorism. If they do BDS, you say it's anti-Semitism. Yeah. So they can't do it peacefully and they can't do it violently. How can they do it? Give me a way that they can do it. And the answer is always because yeah. the reality is they want them to suffer quietly. That's exactly what they want them to do. Mm -hmm. So but this actually is a clever ass way to answer that question. Mm -hmm. Right. Because BDS, they claim it's an economic approach, but it's anti-Semitism. I guess they could try to say this is anti-Semitism, too. It's total bullshit. But the idea is a general strike. What happens if we try to BDS is like, let's grind the economy to a halt with outside pressure, like in apartheid South Africa. Right. The general strike is from within. Let's ground the economy to a halt. Yeah. So really, that will start to have some impacts if they stick with it. The fact of the matter is. I really think you need both in order to get some movement. So I think you need BDS, um, and I think you need the general strike at the same time, and you also need tremendous pressure exerted on the U.S. government by any means necessary through anybody yes. in order to try to force the Biden administration to cut off that $4 billion per year that we give Israel, yes. stop rearming them, for example. I mean, there's a number of things, very concrete things that the U.S. can do, which would materially change what's happening on the ground. So if you do all those things, then you're really talking about maybe getting some movement. And I will say, the way history works is everybody think it's, thinks it's impossible until it happens. That's right. If you said in like 1962 that, you know, hey, we're going to get the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, people would have been like, the fuck are you talking about? Segregation's yeah. here. It's not going anywhere. Yeah. And then it turns out that wasn't actually accurate, and we were able to change some of those laws. Same thing with apartheid South Africa, you know, and it, it would have seemed so difficult to integrate these populations. And Lord knows it's not perfect here. It's not perfect there. There's still a long pathway to go. But, you know, the, the, the linchpin of Israel being able to continue this apartheid regime is the U.S. I mean, we completely run cover for them. We resupply them. We make sure that they've got all the precision targeted weapon, even as this is going on, you know, continuing with this massive um, weapon sale to Israel, running cover for them at the UN. The Biden administration blocked for the fifth time a resolution that would have called for an immediate ceasefire here. And so fifth look, time. That's fucking crazy. We're we're their enablers. I mean, we're the ones who allow this regime to exist. And there's just no way around that. So I think to your point, what this has all really strengthened my belief in is that 
every time you see someone try to say BDS is anti-Semitism or to pass these laws that, you know, make it so you can't be a teacher in Texas if you support BDS, et cetera, we need to really vociferously push back against that because totally. the, the economic boycott, the general strike, like hitting Israel on the economic level and making them pay in terms of money, that's really where you can start to start to extract some pain that is nonviolent, that is completely ethically and morally justified, that has a lot of support just throughout history. And I think part of what is important about the general strike in particular is it's a concept that it requires no explaining. You know, BDS for people who don't know, they haven't read, they don't understand, like it, it can be demonized more easily, I think, than a general strike, which every American is gonna feel like they have some connection to that word and they understand basically what's going on and they see it as a justif morally justifiable tactic. Yeah, and I just want to give everybody a quick update on the numbers on the ground before we get into our yeah. conversation with Abby Martin. But there's been 184 residential towers, houses, and 33 wow. media centers that have been completely demolished That's in the Israeli nice airstrikes on Gaza. More than 1,335 housing units were completely or severely demolished, and about 13,000 were partially damaged. And then... Um, the Ministry of Health in Gaza says 230 Palestinians have been killed by Israel over the past 11 days, including 65 children and 39 mm. women, Ugh. and at least 1,710 others have been wounded. So that's uh, the unfortunate reality on the ground right now. We need pressure by any means necessary. And um, so I want to go ahead and jump into our interview with Abby Martin. So Abby Martin is a journalist. She's a, a TV presenter. She's an activist. She helped found the citizen journalism website Media Roots, and she serves on the board of directors for the Media Freedom Foundation. Um, she also was big in the Occupy Wall Street movement. She's been, you know, on, on a variety of different outlets, and she has an amazing documentary on Gaza out uh, called Gaza Fights for Freedom, which Phenomenal. I highly, highly recommend everybody and, check out. And she made it free on YouTube um, for everybody to be able to, she took the paywall down so everyone could watch this during this time. But if you have the means, I would highly recommend that you sign up for her Patreon or to support her work because she really does some of the fiercest and bravest work I've seen. You're going to want to after you watch Gaza Fights for Freedom because the, you know, to, to get this footage shot and to tell this story is really a next level of journalism, which is like the best journalism I think I've ever seen. So anyway, without further ado, here's Abby Martin. Abby Martin, thank you so much. It's great to have you. It's great to be on. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, I want to start with just a really open-ended question, which is, how did we get to this place? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point, Crystal, because, of course, the way that this is painted in the corporate media is just, you know, Gaza fires rockets and then Israel has the right to self-defense. And you never really hear about the context, well, what happened that preceded the rockets. And in this case, you know, without going back to the actual origin of the settler colony state, in this case, it was the court order that uh, authorized mass evictions of Sheikh Jarrah, which is an occupied East Jerusalem. And this was a uh, very kind of violent purges of Palestinians from their homes that they had been in for generations. And so you saw extremist armed mobs going and uh, removing people's belongings, pulling them out of their homes. You heard, uh, you know, children screaming. It was just a very violent scene. And these extremist settlers have 
guns, you know, I mean, and Palestinians don't because you have to remember that this is a territory that's under Israeli military law. So it's illegal to protest. You can't convene in groups. You can't pass out political literature. So all of this um, needs to be seen in the context of what happened next, which then was the storming of um Al-Aqsa Mosque, the third holiest site in Islam during Ramadan, sending 100 worshippers to the hospital, then IDF soldiers attacking the hospital. And so Hamas had issued a warning saying, we are going to retaliate if you do not stop this violent um, act. And they did. They shot rockets. And then we all know what happened next, which is just the continuous massacre that's ongoing till today. You know, it's, it's interesting that the way mainstream media likes to frame it is that, yes, history started with the first Hamas rocket that was fired. That's basically the narrative that they want to push out there. Um, and that's we know that's obviously absurd. Do you think that the dam is breaking in terms of public opinion? Because I saw Ali Velshi do a segment on MSNBC that was very pro-Palestine. I was actually floored with how good it was for MSNBC. I saw some new polls that Crystal brought to my attention of young Democrats are actually more supportive of Palestine than Israel. So do you think the dam is breaking in terms of public opinion? And finally, people are sort of leaning more on the Palestinian side now. Yeah, I know what poll you're talking about, Crystal, the Gallup poll. Uh, that was pretty historic because in the history of the poll, it had always fallen on the side of Israel needs to pressure Palestine or the U.S. rather needs to pressure Palestine for the, the issue to be resolved, quote unquote. And for the first time, Americans said, no, Israel is the party that needs to be pressured here. I do think the dam is breaking. I think this has been boiling over for some time, Kyle, uh, for years now. I mean, I think 2014 was really a breaking moment and people just were furious and didn't know where to put that energy. And of course, coupling that with the advent of social media over the last 10 to 15 years where Palestinians are finally able to film their own reality and show the world what's going on. Um, whereas Israel has been able to kind of maintain and control the narrative for so long. Um, and that has shattered more and more. So then you have the Great March of Return where people, I think, were very horrified as well. Um, and then today, I think, seeing what's going on, not only with the continuous bombing and bombardment of this open air prison, but also this ethnic cleansing of Sheikh Jarrah. Like people are seeing the videos of mm. that, that guy from New York being like, yep. I'm going to take your home. You know, I mean, all of this, you can't put it, you can't put it back in the bottle. Like it's already, it's already out there and it's just going to continue to spread in terms of the political consciousness. And I have seen this breakthrough at some some point, like you said, on MSNBC, <clears throat> they invited a young Palestinian man whose home was being ethnically cleansed on like CNN or something. And you see more and more people um, kind of not being able to avoid uh, what's coming, you know, and we know that Israel knows what's coming. Kyle, you've covered these anti-BDS laws. Why would they be passing these anti-BDS laws in so many states if they weren't afraid of that movement inevitably putting pressure on them to at least stop or, or condition the U.S. aid that subsidizes this. A lot's been made, too, of Netanyahu um, taking sort of explicitly partisan stands within American politics. So coming here, giving that speech to Congress about the Iran deal, basically actively campaigning against Barack Obama, uh, you know, you, uh, supporting Trump's border wall and saying, hey, the wall works here, just <laughs> completely inserting himself into partisan politics. Do you think that's part of it, too? And do you worry that then that just makes it into sort of like one more tribal American political issue? Yeah, you know, I, we all kind of know 
the state of why we are so brainwashed on this issue. We're pretty much taught that Israel's like an extension of the, this government from birth. You know, it's the only democracy in the Middle East. We have we have to protect it at all costs. Um, it's surrounded by neighbors who hate it, uh, you know, and it's so essential for like as, as a proxy of U.S. militarism. Joe Biden said this himself. Yep. Uh, it looked like he had m more hair now. I don't know if he had hair plugs or what, <laughs> he but like right. he, he looked more bald in that, that speech like 15 years ago. But he was saying he says something very interesting. He says if Israel didn't exist, because he's arguing for that $404 billion aid package that they authorize every year, he said if Israel didn't exist, we would have to create an Israel in the Middle East in order to maintain her interests, meaning the United States. And I really think that says it all as how essential Israel is as, a, as an extension of U.S. empire and U.S. imperialism in the region, kind of as a battering ram for our operations. But the fact that Netanyahu has inserted himself so uh, ferociously, you know, sidestepping Obama, coming and giving that unprecedented speech to Congress when Obama, I mean, Obama oversaw the largest aid deal to Israel. Like, yeah, he was he was maybe speaking rhetorically about how settlements needed to stop. But like that was even too much for Netanyahu. So uh, I think that, you know, the line has been drawn in the sand. Um, and the fact that the media is actually painting Biden as like standing up to Netanyahu when he's essentially giving him a completely green light to continue this um, blocked four international ceasefire agreements right now. And the media is like, this is unprecedented. Like he's really standing strong. It's like, how? <laughs> what is he doing at yeah. all? <clears throat> but we see Rashida Tlaib uh, confronting him on the tarmac and we see so much pressure mounting internationally and, of course, here that I think Biden will not have a choice. And he even said this to Netanyahu in a recent phone call. He said, I'm feeling the pressure. You need to find a way to stop this. And that really shows you that pressure does work. Yeah. You know, Abby, the thing that gets to me more than anything else is honestly the weaseliness from U.S. politicians and Israeli politicians around this. So, yeah, as Biden is saying and the media is reporting, oh, he's privately pressuring Netanyahu for a ceasefire, they officially block the fifth attempt at the UN for a real ceasefire. So that's the thing that gets me more than anything else is that there's so easily, and it's just like with, you know, after watching your documentary, Gaza Fights for Freedom, which was phenomenal, I was already most annoyed with this, you know, uh, Netanyahu's victim complex, the Likud and the Israeli victim complex. And then like, after you watch that, documentary, oh, you just get seething with rage because they're playing the victim as they are very clearly victimizing others. And so my question is, what happens from now? Because mm -hmm. Crystal brought up a great point. <clears throat> Apparently, there's this general strike happening now um, among Palestinians. There's like solidarity among them. There's apparently only 150 out of 65,000 Palestinian construction workers showed up in Israel to work. And that that cost nearly $40 million for one day in lost productivity. So do you think this moves the needle and what happens from here? I absolutely do. This was a historic, unprecedented strike that happened across political parties, across factions. We know how divided the left is here. And you saw unprecedented actions here, 150,000 people in Dearborn meeting Joe Biden. This was the largest pro-Palestine demonstration in the history of this country. Wow. But within the occupied territories, the fact that everyone showed up and the fact that you have, 
you know, 80 percent or so of the occupied West Bank that's under brutal Israeli military law that makes it illegal to protest. And they still have been protesting nonstop despite being shot with live ammunition, hmm. despite being arrested in mass. This is an incredible, incredible moment that that I absolutely think is a breakthrough moment, not only in terms of this mass consciousness that's just on fire, but the fact that Palestinians are standing up, being invigorated from each other, you know, and standing strong together. This strike really shows you how much Israel relies on exploiting Palestinian labor. And this is just the construction industry. I mean, how much money did they lose across the board here? So I think that this is just going to continue. It's going to keep going. Um, we can't you know, we can't stop being angry because I think every couple of years Israel goes on the offense and, you know, it, it justifies all these atrocities by cloaking itself and the notion that these are all human shields and dehumanizing the population of Gaza to be able to do this without accountability. But Kyle, in the Great March of Return, the documentary that you saw, um, they use the same excuse that all those people were human shields. I mean, they they have a track record of lying about this and we can't let them get away with it again. And we hope that that movie and everything that's going on now will just continue to mount as a criminal, uh, to present the International Criminal Court for uh, irrefutable war crimes that have been documented. And it just continues to be, it continues to be pretty harrowing what they're doing um, and the audacity that they have to continue to claim that doctors, journalists that they're bombing and their entire families in their homes at night while they sleep, that those people are human shields. Um, it's the most egregious thing I've ever seen. And the fact that the U.S. just sits by and, and uh, aids and abets this is just beyond the pale to me. I've seen this very cynical uh, sentiment coming from corners of corporate media that's just like, oh, well, this is just the cycle and here we go again and it's all the same and then things will quiet down and then there'll be another another flashpoint. And um, the general strike is one thing that people have been pointing to to say, no, actually, there's something a little different going on here because that unity between Palestinians in Israel and West Bank and Gaza is not always something that you see. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the different apartheid regimes are like for th those three groups of people, what a day in the life mm. is like for um, a Palestinian living in Israel versus well, the West Bank versus Gaza. Absolutely. Yeah, people, when people think of, oh, the West Bank is under occupation, they think, okay, it's just like there's Israeli bases there, you know, there's maybe Israelis there because there's settlers. No, it's really an occupation in the same sense that the U.S. was occupying Iraq mm. and the British was occupying Iraq. I mean, that is exactly what it's like within this territory. So you have only 17 percent of the West Bank is under Palestinian control. Um, and that's area A. And so then you have area B and C, <clears throat> which is basically uh, in this brutal military occupation. It's dehumanizing checkpoints. It's absolutely humiliating humiliating uh, conditions of daily life. Uh, you know, just one example the fact that Palestinians, <clears throat> at any given time, they can just be blocked from their roads going to their homes. So they have to reroute, maybe adding hours to their commute. Then you have the checkpoints where they're waiting hours in line, <clears throat> getting interrogated by Israeli soldiers that are just pointing giant machine guns in their faces. And then you have the refugee camps within this area that get regularly raided by Israeli soldiers, uh, spraying tear gas, smoke bombs, skunk water. It's actually chemically enhanced 
shit water that they spray all throughout Palestinians' homes um, and in their water supply. They just have one tank that they can refill every month for their family. So that's that's the occupied West Bank. And, and like I said, it's uh, it's very stifling in terms of political activism. Of course, you can't defend yourself from these armed mobs that go and harass you like we're seeing on camera. Then you have within 48. 48 is, are, are the lines of the initial uh, Israeli state. You have uh, is, Israeli citizens who are Palestinians um, living within this area. And they are also discriminated and segregated against. You have several different laws that discriminate against Israeli Palestinians living within this area. Um, and you've had multiple protests of people saying, you know, we want we want to basically be treated just like Israeli Jews are within 48. And this is exactly where we're seeing protests erupt now. This is what we're told by the Israeli political establishment, that this is the democracy, right? Within 48, Jews, Christians, Muslims, they all live in peace and, and harmoniously, and this is all democracy. Well, it's interesting because we're seeing all of these violent eruptions um, and mobs that are brutalizing people within 48. So I thought that this was the place where everyone was living among, amongst each other peacefully. But really, that facade is completely shattered. Kind of once the green light was given, you just saw people going everywhere, destroying Palestinian businesses in this area. And there's Palestinians coming from all over the area trying to, like, guard their homes because they're living in fear of their lives of uh, being killed. Uh, then you have Gaza. Gaza, you know, is painted by Western media as being like a different state ruled by Hamas. Um, and it's just this eternal conflict over religion. And these two states just can't get along. And one fires rockets and one fires bombs. Um, Gaza is a 25 by five mile strip of land that is completely controlled by the Israeli military as well, or hostile militaries in terms of the Egyptian authorities that work in collaboration with Israel. They control everything that comes in and out of Gaza, and this includes people. Uh, you don't have the basic human right of mobility. You can't leave unless you are authorized by the Israeli government. So this is if in terms of emergency medical um, attention, you know, if you have cancer that you need treatment for, all of those things need permits from Israeli authorities. And everyone there is collectively punished um, because Hamas is the governing body. And it's not just that Hamas is the militant group which uh, acts in self-defense. Um, it's also that Hamas runs transportation. They run the healthcare system. So when you see Israel saying we're targeting Hamas, quote unquote, militants, that could mean that they're targeting the transportation minister. You know, that could mean that they're targeting uh, a media agency and just saying, well, they're in the vicinity of Hamas or they're housing a Hamas office building when really Hamas comprises of thousands of people even loosely affiliated with the government because they need to operate society. Um, but we're talking about a strip of land that is an open air prison quite literally because not only does it comprise of 75% refugees who were ethnically cleansed from you know the origin of, of Israel. Israel continues to deport what they call criminals into Gaza. So that's like their punishment. If you commit a felony or if you are accused of something, you literally will be deported to Gaza and just left there to rot. Wow. And these people are deprived clean water. They have two to three hours of electricity a day. And it's a humiliating existence. <clears throat> I mean, think about how awful that would be to actually not be able to freeze water or like 
put food in the refrigerator. I mean, just basic things like that that make life absolutely impossible and make any standard of living uh, just completely impossible. And even the UN said by 2020, it would be completely uninhabitable. Well, it's 2021. It's 2021. So, um, you know, I, I said this earlier, I tweeted this, that in a world that made sense, if the U.S. actually cared about freedom and democracy and human rights like we pretend to, we would, number one, cut off the $4 billion per year that we give Israel. Number two, cut off their weapons. Number three, sanction them. And number four, support BDS. Um, do you think, what do you think is more likely that we'll eventually get a two-state solution or a one-democratic state solution? Well, the Oslo Accords basically did already carve out what the future Palestinian state would be. And Israel defied that uh, in violation of international law, and they continued to build settlements. And so this notion of a two-state solution, I think, is only held up by U.S. politicians when, in reality, Israeli politicians haven't even entertained this notion for decades. Um, this is not possible with the settlements where they are. Bernie Sanders, back in the 2020 campaign, was actually talking about withdrawing the illegal settlements to the 1967 borders. This mm. is something that could be negotiated. But without that... Um, it is impossible. There's no feasibility to construct a second state because within those West Bank territories of A, B and C, it's totally atomized with Israeli settlements and checkpoints that even if you were to say this is the future Palestinian state, you would have to like jump from one speck of land to the next that is going around the settlements. And then you have Gaza, which is in a totally separate area. Um, so you know, I'm gonna. I feel like the Palestinians need to decide what they want to do, but I I do think that with the reality the way it is now, like a one-state solution is the only possibility, and that means equal rights, right? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. one person, one vote. You know, like you just said. I mean, we're allegedly founded on the principles of human rights and democracy, and uh, the fact that our two greatest allies in the world are like the most undemocratic, like fascist regimes, <laughs> Saudi Arabia and Israel. But I do what come next conditioning aid like that has to be the first thing conditioning yeah. aid to make Israel adhere to international law. But what would that mean? That would mean that they would have to withdraw the illegal settlements, which have been illegal yep. for the past 20 years since the Oslo Accords. So conditioning aid is first and foremost. But I do think the consensus of the American public is shifting and not going to go backwards because Israel is just going to keep exposing itself and its true nature every time it does this. And people aren't gonna like unlearn what they've learned. Like we know now, right? And they've they've kind of, they've exposed themselves in a way that like they can't cover up. So um, conditioning aid, then putting the pressure on withdrawing the settlements because that that's how they'll comply with international law. And then we can look at like, what is the feasibility here for, you know, equal rights, which really would mean the fall of apartheid. It doesn't mean expelling anyone. It doesn't mean purging anyone from their homes. It means just dissolving this two-tiered justice system hmm. and giving people rights, ending the siege, ending the occupation, and complying with international law. It shouldn't be that hard to do. Um, 
Abby, one of the things that I think has been interesting to watch and that, again, with social media, you can get a look at in real time is you get Netanyahu. He comes on, you know, the Sunday show here. He's got his talking points. He'll say, oh, we're, we're great to our uh, Arab citizens and they're disproportionately doctors and they're pharmacists and they're treated better than any other Arabs in the entire Middle East. And by the way, we're super committed to the two state solution. And then when you hear what's being said on Hebrew language, local television in Israel, much more blatant about the goals there. There was a clip that was floating around of um, Ariel Sharon's son, yeah. former prime minister, of course, um, just blatantly saying, look, they shoot rockets at it. We're going to cut off their electricity. We're going to cut off their water. We're going to cut off their medical care. Just much more blatant about the actual goals of the moment. Talk a little bit about that sort of like two-faced approach and <clears throat> whether that is sustainable as well. Yeah, it's interesting when you see Israeli cabinet ministers and like IDF spokespeople, they all just speak like us, you know, and they're deployed out there to basically propagandize us. That's the intent behind it. They go out, they're paraded around corporate media, and they just give those talking points that they know Americans want to hear. Um, and it's quite fascinating, the contradiction and contrast when you look at what's being said within Israeli society. It is much more embracing a just full-throttle fascist tone um, where you heard exactly I mean that what you just described is something that that's pretty regularly said uh, and endorsed you know explicitly endorsed I mean Netanyahu is not an extremist aberration of Israeli society I think that Netanyahu pretty much represents where Israeli society is at yes there are definitely like leftists there but there's not enough of them to make an impact to really push Israeli society back from the brink of fascism. Um, and you even have Benny Gantz, who's the defense minister today. He was Netanyahu's opponent in the last election. He is also an unabashed war criminal. He was the head of the, uh, he was in charge of the IDF overseeing ca carpet bombing in Gaza before. He just took to uh, TV to say that, you know, no building, no person in Gaza is immune from airstrikes because they regard everyone in Gaza as a hostile entity because Hamas rules the Strip. And they're just basically saying that they're going to commit war crimes on Israeli television. I mean, it's just so stunning, the admission here. Um, you had Netanyahu saying the same thing, that every building is, building is going to be flattened. We're going to light the Strip on fire. Um, Netanyahu's poll ratings have actually gone up. Oh, They've gone up. And in and, and light of all of this, and I think it really shows you where Israeli society is largely at. I mean, you know, it's a settler colonial shift, state. Is that a shift, Is that a change? It is. I mean, yeah. I mean, you can look at where Israeli society was at decades ago. There was a, a left. There was even socialist enclaves, you know, kibbutzes. There was a lot of socialists living in Israel. I mean, even Bernie, like, lived there for a, for a certain period of time. It has gotten increasingly fascistic because... Israel itself necessitates and is predicated on the ongoing ethnic cleansing of the indigenous population, right? It's a land built on top of another people. And as it continues to expand as a settler colony, it has to continue to expel and purge people. Uh, for example, in East Jerusalem, there is a demographic law in place where 70% of the population needs to be Jewish, 30% Arab. So what does that actually mean? I mean, wrap your mind around that law that you need to actually continue to expel people in order to maintain an artificial majority of a Jewish population. And that 
you know, at large is really the problem here. Um, that means that you have to continue to subjugate and oppress indigenous people who've lived there, who have actual ancestral roots in the land. And as it becomes more obvious and as you continue to take more land in defiance of international law, um, you know, society has to be okay with that at large. I mean, I think 99% of Israelis are probably Zionists. You know, a lot of people want to paint themselves as liberal. It's the safe haven for LGBTQ people. It's a democratic society. Five million Palestinians are denied basic democratic rights. And in order to be okay with living there and being a Zionist and being an Israeli, you have to be okay with the occupation. You have to be okay with the fact that you are continuing to colonize another person's land. It would be like if America, which is also a settler colony, it would be like if this country <clears throat> was still violently ethnically cleansing the native people like now. You know, it's an ongoing project that continues to expand. So I think that it's becoming more exposed, but but um, it's becoming increasingly fascistic as well because the leftists have fleed. The Oslo Accords dissolved once Israel completely flew in the face of, of the verdict there and continued to just do whatever they wanted. And I think the peace process uh, became very impossible from that point forward. Um, and we have a, to a couple token, there's a couple token Arabs in the Knesset, and they want to pretend like there's an opposition party, but it's really a right-wing opposition party versus a more fascistic opposition party. And uh, it's, it's a completely diminishing, diminishing left wing. Um, leftist is actually a slur in Israeli society today. Um, and a lot of leftists have either just left because they have passports for European countries or, or something like that, or they just can't be there. I mean, there's several anti-Zionist Israelis who have just left and they just said, we can't live there because it's so hard to live there. You get spit on, you get attacked if you're trying to film some of these rallies or, or talk to people. It's an ugly, ugly, uh, reality there, you guys. I mean, and I know this is an anecdotal example, but I did go and do like Vox Pop Man on the Streets with just average Israelis. And it, it was pretty shocking. I mean, a lot of them kind of gleefully endorsed genocidal mentalities, you know, and ethnic cleansing. And I would I was pretty appalled because these aren't the extremist settlers that Israel likes to paint as an aberration. These are average run of the mill Israelis who are just walking around and they absolutely uh, do not want the Palestinians to be there at all. This is not about living in peace or harmony. This is about wanting all of them gone. So uh, last week, Rania Kalik made the point, I thought it was a good point, about how um, there's this disconnect because a lot of American Jews are actually leading the fight against Zionism, you know? And like, like you're saying here, that's really not necessarily the case in Israel. So... It's interesting that there's that dichotomy because I guess American Jews feel like they just can't relate to what the state of Israel is doing. Um, you know, I remember when I first learned that there are actual fascist governments that are aligned with Israel and Netanyahu. And like when Netanyahu's son, remember this? Netanyahu's son yeah, tweeted yeah. out some like blatantly anti Semitic propaganda <laughs> with like George Soros and like the big nose thing. I was like, oh my God, what the, what the fuck is this? And, and the connection is ethnostates. They love mm -hmm. the idea of an ethnostate. And that's why like Richard Spencer has said, we want to base a white society, like a WASP society, 
on what Israel's doing. And so there's this weird, strange bedfellows here. But again, the connecting tissue tissue is the ethnostate thing. So let me ask you this. Um, you brought up the polls of Israeli society. I remember we learned one in your documentary, Gaza Fights for Freedom. Again, everybody mm -hmm. needs to check that out. It's mind-blowing. But in that documentary, you said, I think it's like 85 or 95% mm -hmm. of people supported the 2014 bombing, Protective Edge. And that's... Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, people in Israel, like 85 or 95 percent of them supported it. And just so everybody knows, the U.N. says that about 80 percent of the victims of those bombings were civilians. And so I guess my question is, how do you think we got to the point where like very obvious war crimes and immoral and unethical actions are rationalized? Is it really just the whole like you're taught from when you're a kid to be always fearful of the outsiders and that everybody is like a closet Nazi and so you're always the victim? Is, is that what leads to the rationalization of all these terrible actions? Well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, here in America, we externalize all of our violence because it's like unleashed on the rest of the world. And there is no real like, quote unquote, terrorist threat, you know, 9-11 aside. But you would still kind of find that current of bloodlust among Americans uh, to a small degree. I think a lot of people would say, you know, the war on terror is justified. Muslims, you know, Islam is a disease. Like a lot of people would say like a lot of horrible things about Muslims because we've been so conditioned to accept this eternal war on terrorism against this population. Well, <clears throat> you know, and, and, and then going back to like America's a settler colony based on the, you know, extermination of the native population. Well, Israel is basically an extension of this mentality, except amplified to like the utmost degree. I mean, the fact that Israelis do see what they deem as a threat, right? Rockets are lobbied at them. Um, they go and bomb shelters. They tell themselves every day that these people want to kill them. When you're going into the West Bank, Israel has put up giant signs like in red being like, you will die if you are an Israeli and you go into this area. Basically just you know, hammering fear into the hearts of Israeli citizens like these people hate you. They want to kill you um, from birth. You know, you grow up thinking that these people do not want you to exist. Um, and they are what they, they you know, they see themselves at, at having a war against Muslims as well. And I think that's why they were so quick to talk to someone, an American documentarian on camera being like, yeah, like you guys get us right. Like, let's kill them all. Like, let's mm. wipe them out of here, um, knowing that, like, we empathize with, like, that war on Islam, right? Um, but but to us, it's, like, really shocking and offensive to our liberal sensibilities because we, we hoist ourselves up as, like, this arbiter of human rights and democracy and, like, oh, my God, that's so offensive. But even though Israel has pinkwashed itself just the same, it's a much more... Uh, <laughs> you know, they, they're much more open. Um, and I think that they justify that because of what's going on. Right. And I barely even asked. I was just like, what do you think about the situation? They're just like, it's crazy. We have to kill these people. Um, oh. You know, I think that that's how you get there, Kyle. It's a slow it's a slow motion thing. And it really starts from the segregated kindergartens that people are in um, and the teachings of, of what the Israeli state is and why it needs to protect people that live there. And, you know, it is just really disgusting, this conflation with Judaism that Israel has uh, posited itself as like being synonymous with the Jewish religion, you know, putting the Star of David on its flag. It's a disgusting thing. And I'm and I'm happy that we're seeing Jews on the front lines of really saying we do not 
we're not represented by this apartheid state. This this does not represent Judaism um, because this weaponization of anti-Semitism to deflect any criticism of war crimes mm. is such a, a disturbing thing because it's basically saying anti-racists are the racist. You're the bigot. You're the racist. If you want to criticize a state that's committing atrocities and and that we have to flip that narrative on its head and put them on the defense and say, why are you committing war crimes? Like you can't justify. But that's the whole human shield propaganda come in, because the population has been so dehumanized that people just seem to accept that, that they want to die, that it's a death cult, that they're putting themselves in front of weapons caches. I mean, who? You know, it's just it, it flies in the face of logic. But for some reason, they continue to get away with this. Um, and I just don't think people are buying it anymore. Like going back to the like we've reached a breaking point and we have to hold Israel accountable for war crimes. And, and it has to come back to this government, to Joe Biden, to Joe pr- pressuring him because he is subsidizing all of this. No, I mean, the connection could not possibly be more direct. And it's so obvious, like his weak calls for, you know, and carefully couched and never stated directly by him for like a ceasefire at some point, whenever you get around to it, Mm. is just utterly, utterly pathetic. And Abby, I think one of the most important things about your documentary, Gaza Fights for Freedom, is just literally showing the humanity of people living in Gaza. I mean... It's such a rare thing to see in American corporate media. But, you know, that's when you ask, like, how do normal Israelis get to the place where they not only justify what their government is doing, but actively celebrate it? I mean, you said Netanyahu's ratings going up higher than ever. Um, it all comes stems from dehumanization, where you convince yourself and you are convinced through a consistent campaign of propaganda that these people are your enemies, that they're, you know, that they're not really human. They're just they're terrorists from the time that they're born. They're throwing themselves. You know, they want to die. They want to be martyred, all of that. And your documentary really exposes how that's just a completely insane and genocidal lie. I wonder if also, Abby, you think that the Black Lives Matter movement here over the summer and how much widespread support it garnered um, changed a little bit the narrative around Israel-Palestine and the context and the framing of that as well for Americans. Yeah, and I forgot to mention that everyone, of course, is mandated to serve in the Israeli military. So mm-hmm. it's it's a kind of rabid militaristic society. I mean, can you imagine if every American was forced to serve in the U.S. military, how much more overt that current yeah. would be? It already is bad enough here where we just worship the military and, and you know, every aspect of our culture. I do think that Black Lives Matter moved the needle, especially bringing light to the fact that almost every major municipal police department in this country is trained by Israeli forces. You know, you have the NYPD actually has an office space in Tel Aviv. These police agencies work very, very closely with each other. I mean, I don't know if that's why or or contributing to the increased militarization of our police forces. If you look at like a picture of what cops look like 15 years ago, I mean, it's like a joke um, compared to what they look like today. They look like fucking stormtroopers. Um, but that it's all like it all fits together. And I do think that Black Lives Matter really started that conversation. And that's exactly where we need to go with this is linking like all of these struggles together because the left is so fragmented here. Um, And Black Lives Matter has been such an incredible moment 
of revolutionary like spirit and people really taking to the streets in an unprecedented fashion here. And if we link that together with the fact that these police train with the Israeli military forces. And I and I know that Black Lives Matter, obviously, you know, tons of photos and images coming out, like standing in solidarity with Palestinians and vice versa, where after the George Floyd incident, you had Palestinians actually like holding up signs saying like, you know, we support Black Lives Matter and stuff. And I think it just comes back to international solidarity. Um, but I do think that's what Black Lives Matter was doing, like drawing attention to oppress people, not only here, but everywhere. Um, and if only we can get kind of liberal behind that because you know it's been kind of tokenistically like hijacked like it always is you know corporations posting the black square just to kind of uh, move liberals into buying the products that they want to and feeling good about themselves and essentially just doubling down on capitalism when if you look at what Black Lives Matter was calling for it was actually a radical dis dismantling of like the capitalist system and and a systemic change you know, a revolutionary systemic change. And, and of course, that's been sanitized, that's been hijacked, that's been co-opted so viciously by the liberal media establishment and political establishment. So we need to go back to the roots of what Black Lives Matter was and, and open that up to say, look, Black Lives Matter is one thing. Then you have immigrant immigrant detention camps at the border being housed with Israeli military technology. Then you can look at just the larger spectrum of U.S. empire, right? And all of our money being squandered on this military machine. That's why we can't have healthcare. That's why we can't have education. Like linking all those things together and building a broad anti-imperialist front, something that we haven't had in decades in this country, I think is is how we're going to build this pressure campaign to finally see the fall of apartheid. So, Abby, you mean their end goal wasn't for the CIA to talk about intersectionality? <laughs> that wasn't that wasn't the goal of the movement. I missed that. <laughs> classic psyop. Pun and then yeah. everyone punched left as a as as a result of that psyop. I love it. Classic so, CIA. Um, the most jarring thing that I learned in your documentary, Gaza Fights for Freedom, is um, you sort of detailed how everybody's a target. And when I say everybody, I mean everybody. So they sort of methodically, with snipers, at this very clearly peaceful march, which is hundreds of yards away from them, they shot disabled people. They shot media people, they shot healthcare people, women, children, super elderly people. Like, I remember watching that and thinking, holy shit, I knew it was bad, but it's even worse than I thought. And so I don't even know if I really have a question here, but <laughs> tell, tell the story of, um, yeah. well, I'm going to butcher her name, but I think it's Razan. Yeah, Razan Al-Najjar. Tell, tell the story of her for, for everybody so they can understand exactly what we're dealing with here. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of what motivated me to do something about the Great March because I was so affected by seeing this young, incredible female medic. She was 19 years old. She was the first female medic on the scene participating in the Great March of Return. This was an unprecedented action of tens of thousands of Palestinians going to this artificial fence that partitions them from their land um, and just protesting peacefully, like you said, I mean, holding flags, standing there, yep. and they were mowed down by Israeli snipers. The live ammunition started at nine in the morning the very first day. Oh. Uh, they went out there every single Friday despite 
risking life and limb um, to just protest, right? And and to protest these completely abysmal conditions that they're forced to live in. Razan Najjar was just one of many medics there, but she was just an incredible trailblazer and super badass like feminist i mean there was an interview with her with the new york times and she was just like i dare you to find anyone with as much bravery as me just like going off like spitting fire um and israeli snipers actually you know they knew who she was she had been there for many many weeks she had treated many many people she saw someone die in her arms um and they eventually targeted her and sniped her dead and we talked to her family, you know, her her family and colleagues describe who she was and, and keep her memory alive. Um, and I think one of the most disgusting things that happened after she was murdered by an Israeli sniper is that the IDF released a propaganda video that claimed mm. she was a human shield. Yep. And they doctored her speech because she was giving a lot of interviews because she was like, you know, and, and I think that she was intentionally targeted because they knew that she was like the face and they didn't want her to be there. Um, But she gave an interview, I think to Turkish television where she was just like, I'm a human shield as a combat medic. Like I put myself in the line of fire to save people. I'm using that term to say like, I I put my body in front of the wounded to save their lives. And they cut it maliciously and just said like, I'm a human shield. And they're just like, see, even, even Hamas is making these medics become human shields for them. It's just like, my God, I mean, how low can you possibly go? And what was so disgusting is after she was murdered, all of corporate media like covered it because it was just such a huge scandal, but they gave airtime you know, they maybe took like a 30 second soundbite from her mom or, or her colleague. And then they would give like 10 minutes to an Israeli general oh, talking geez. about how she was just like hit with shrapnel and died or like, oh, it was just an accident. Well, she shouldn't have been there. Oh. And it's like that's the final word, you know, and that I think that just speaks to just how grotesque the nature of the coverage is and just this uncritical nature of just not questioning, you know, and just becoming essentially state stenographers. But Kyle, it's, it's true. I mean, we're talking about 35 children shot, deliberately yeah. shot. And that's what this UN report conclusively found was that all of these protected categories of the, of the Geneva conventions were targeted and shot dead by Israeli snipers hiding behind sand dunes, hundreds, sometimes yep. hundreds of yards away. Um, and, you know, one international war correspondent there said something really just profound. She was just like, I've covered wars in Libya, Iraq, Syria. She's like, I've never seen anything like this because this is a slow, methodical shooting. Yep. This is just people just milling around. And every five minutes you'll hear a shot ring off and someone else will just collapse on the ground mm-hmm. and die. Like that is a very like I'm getting chills all over my body because that is like really sadistic and um, a harrowing thing. And we were told by the media that it was just clashes, you know, that day that 60 people were killed in one day, that was just clashes, you know, told in the passive voice, oh, Palestinians just died. No, they were murdered. This was a massacre. Yeah. Um, And no one was held accountable. One more fact I want to add about this, um, Mm -hmm. because this really hit me hard, because I saw why they did what they did. At this march, they purposefully made it. So there weren't groups like Hamas, or anybody else. Yeah. And the reason they did that is they were covering their tracks to make sure they were getting ahead of any potential media propaganda. Oh, Hamas is just using this and it's actually, you know, it's really supposed to be violent or whatever. They purposely did invite those groups. And the whole point was we're all just Palestinians here. That's it. We're all Palestinian civilians. And even with them doing that, the media 
still smeared them and pretended like they were only there as human shields for Hamas to what, assassinate Israeli soldiers with rocks from 300 yards away? <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. The propaganda is so thick and it's insufferable. I know. And, and it really shows you like it doesn't matter what they do. Yeah, I think that's right. Is is the really kind of stark takeaway from that is like the international community continues to be like, where's the Palestinian Gandhi? And like, where, where's yeah, the peaceful like, resistance? Here's 80 like, of them this, and you don't yeah, care. Like, yeah. Like they all, they all were killed. Like there yeah. was 200 Palestinian Gandhis and they were mowed down by snipers. Like, why aren't you talking about that? But I, I but yeah, like everyone kind of calls on them. Like, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Um, they did try that. They tried it in mass and they were met with murder just the same. And so it doesn't matter what they do. They can peacefully resist. They use weapons, they use rocks, and it all has the same outcome. And it doesn't matter if Hamas stops firing rockets, they'll still be living under this brutal medieval siege just the same. And Israel can, will continue to tighten the noose. It doesn't matter what they do. Um, and that's what people really need to wrap their minds around, that it, <laughs> they can't resist this. Well, the, the nonviolent protest is met by complete indifference um, from mm -hmm. corporate media. I mean, um, I saw a post that looked at CNN had never covered the oh. um, years of protest in Sheikh Jarrah oh. until there's violence. Right. Yep. BDS is smeared anti-Semitic. Anti so, you know, that's taken off the table. So, yeah, you're you're really left with th this perception because the only time that there is any sort of um, American media attention is when there is violence. So you're left with the perception that the only thing that's being tried here is violence. I also wanted to ask you, though, Abby, given your experience and given, you know, how clearly um, the press and children and medics uh, were targeted during the march that you, you know, focused your documentary on, what did you make of the complete leveling of the AP Bureau, which housed other media mm -hmm. outlets, including Al Jazeera? And of course, the Israeli military says, oh, it was, Hamas. there were Hamas offices there. We promise we're not going to show you any of the evidence. There was a leak to the Jerusalem Post that was like, we showed the American officials a smoking gun proving Hamas's presence. Secretary of State Tony Blinken immediately comes out and is basically like, I didn't see anything. So what do you make of that and the fact that there were apparently 33 um, media buildings that have been decimated during this uh, current campaign of bombings? Well, there's something that's really horrifying about seeing buildings be demolished like this. I don't know if it's just like the re-traumatization of like going through 9-11 and seeing like the incessant mm. propaganda of like buildings imploding like that. Like it, it's like um, it's like 109-11s happening all the time. They're just like blowing up giant towers and they're just becoming completely demolished, turning to rubble. These are residential towers, media towers, um, apartment buildings. I mean, it's just absolutely stunning. I don't know any other government who does this and gets away with it. Um, and I want to take us back really quickly to 2012, because this is relevant to the Al Sharok media tower that was leveled a couple days ago. But back then, during Operation Pillar of Defense, when 200 Palestinians were killed, they shelled that building. Um, again, housing international media. And one of the offices was an RT office. And my and I was working at RT at the time. I was talking every day about Israeli war crimes and stuff like that. And my colleague's leg was blown off in the shelling. And my boss had asked for a statement. They just said, why did you shell this building knowing that there was like journalists housed there? And the IDF spokesperson said, well, 
everyone in Gaza is a Hamas target, first of all. And your network has taken a side in the coverage. I mean, and that, I think that's like, wow. there's no turning back from that statement. Not only it was an explicit admission of war crime saying we knew that there were journalists there, but then saying almost like a, an ominous threat. Like, well, you took a side. Um, and so that you know, that was kind of a turning point in the sand for me. Like, how could you ever look back without you know, like seeing Israel in the way that you saw it before that? But fast forward to today and they leveled that building completely. Um, this was the second giant media tower that they completely demolished. You know, this is much more than just housing offices. This is like decades of archival footage. I mean, we all know, you know, we we work in media, the equipment, the the time, the resources that are spent to in, in, in those buildings, you know, I mean, yeah, people narrowly escaped with their lives, but like they couldn't save anything else. They couldn't save the archives. They couldn't save their work. I mean, it's just it's absolutely tragic to think of what they lost. It is a war crime. It is a war crime to target an international media headquarters office and claim that Hamas was there. The only proof that they provided to show that Hamas was there was just a photoshopped image of a red outline of the building being like, look, it's red. Hamas must be there. I yeah. mean, with all the surveillance technology they have over the Gaza Strip, they can't provide better evidence to say that Hamas militants are firing from this building. And even if they were, you cannot do that. That is a war crime. You can't target journalistic entities like that. And then, like you said, Crystal, when when they said that Hamas had headquarters there, instead of questioning Israel, CNN and all these all these news agencies questioned AP. How could you turn a blind eye to Hamas? Where's the evidence? Right. Where's the evidence? You're not going to question this. Even Blinken said that they didn't provide it in secret. I mean, the uncritical nature of our of our media is just it never ceases to be stunning to me. Yeah. And especially in, in a case like this, it's like you think that they would empathize with a with a AP office being demolished, <laughs> like unnecessarily being blown up just to send a message, just to send a message. And no, even then, they still just take Israel's word for it. Well, yeah. and right after, too, by the way, the IDF had intentionally lied to them. And said that an invasion had started in Gaza in yep, order to right. further their military campaign, mm -hmm, like got right. caught red handed, directly intentionally lying as a planned ploy to the English language press. Two days later, AP Bureau is decimated and they're like, we believe the idea. It's we think that's ridiculous. probably true. It's but, insane. By the way, there's two points I want to make real quick. Yeah. Number one, you always hear Israel has a right to defend itself. Israel has a right to defend itself. It's like mm -hmm. the standard go to line that you hear all throughout U.S. media. And... I mean, the follow-up to that is obvious. Do Palestinians have a right to defend mm -hmm. themselves? And when you ask that, people don't have an answer. And then the you other point is... You start to get is, very sweaty and nervous when yeah, you ask. Yeah, I don't know what to say. <laughs> uh, like, oh my God, I've never heard you flip <laughs> logic on me. I can't deal with that. And then the other thing is, Israel has Iron Dome. According mm -hmm. to their own numbers, they knock 90% of Hamas's shitty bottle rockets straight out of the air. You're already defending yourself with Iron Dome. So that means all of the attacking of civilian infrastructure that you're doing in Gaza is unquestionably 100% a war crime. There's no doubt about it. No, it's a it's a great point, Kyle. And I saw someone say this and I was just like, you know, I never really thought about that before. The fact that the Iron Dome is the defense. That's right. That is their self-defense. Everything else is unnecessary, indiscriminate bombing. 
And then they yep. use the human shield mantra to cover up this indiscriminate bombing. But it's not just indiscriminate bombing. It is literally they have targeted munitions, which is w- what this giant nearly billion dollar weapons deal that Biden just approved bizarrely amid all of this crisis, tar- special munitions and targeted munitions. What do those do? Those very specifically target people's homes that they claim are in Hamas. But really what we know is doctors, two of Gaza's top trauma doctors' homes were targeted with missiles and their entire families were killed at Mm. night. A journalist's home was just targeted by a missile killed. I mean, countless civilians. I don't know if it's, I think it's like 65 children, uh, 217 Palestinians at this point. These are targeted attacks. Even if there was a Hamas militant station there, you cannot kill their entire family and carpet bomb the neighborhood around this home. Like that is, that's a war crime, right? Yeah. What if it was your kid? Yeah, it's a really, really good point. What if yeah. it was your kid? Just yeah. say that yeah. to people. What if, it what if your it's your kid? kid at school and a terrorist takes over the building? Would you be okay if the police were like, we're just going to bomb the whole building now and kill your kid? Well, and you'd be like, what? What are you talking about? Here's the other thing, too. <laughs> Let's say that you are just a total heartless asshole and you don't give a shit about Palestinian humanity. Mm. I would very much dispute that these tactics keep Israelis safe because right. I can't help but think about, I mean, these little kids. I read this, this story about this little 10-month-old boy whose entire 10 person family murdered except for him. Like what you think he's going to grow up and have like love and puppies and rainbows for the Israeli government that, that did this to him and to his entire family. So even if you're, and that's not an excuse, right? For violence. Mm -hmm. And let me just like add all the necessary caveats, but what do you think you're doing? You're just fueling hate you're fueling violence you're not keeping your citizens safe that's not what the end point of all of this is um but abby i want to ask you as as the last question here um i want to ask you whether you do feel like there's things are a little different in terms of the um u.s public perception if you think that if you see like any ray of hope here in what can often just feel like the most horrific an intractable um, situation. Yeah, and Crystal, I know who you're talking about, that little kid, and that, did you guys see that five-month-old baby who sur- shockingly survived a bombing of a refugee camp? And I just kept thinking, like, this baby's going to, his future was robbed. Yeah. I mean, when he gets old enough to realize that Israel killed his entire family, and it's like, it's really hard to wrap your mind around that. And the targets to like hospitals, the roads leading to the hospitals, refugee camps, media centers, like it's, you know, pretty audacious. Um, I do think public opinion is shifting. I think that we're, we've reached a breaking point. We're at a point of no return. We have to move forward from here. And I think that the most optimistic thing might sound strange, but these anti-BDS laws that the Israeli lobby has worked so hard to pass in 30 states in this country shows you how scared they are. They know the movement has been mounting. The divestment campaigns have had tremendous success around the world. Trade unionists in the UK have already signed on to divestment. I mean, the historic uprising across the occupied Palestinian territories today, the historic strike, the insanely huge protests mounting across the United States that have sustained for the last week here in Los Angeles, uh, outside of the Israeli consulate, every single day people are protesting. 
because they've exposed themselves so much um, and they know inevitably this movement will continue to build and eventually uh, stop subsidizing their apartheid regime. And once that happens, once the U.S. feels so much pressure, once politicians don't get a moment in peace without being forced to stand on the right side of this issue, which is coming, that time is coming, then it will be impossible because the U.S. is pretty much the only entity that's protecting and shrouding Israel with impunity today. During the Great March of Return back in 2018, the U.N., like it was a unanimous resolution from the rest of the world that they wanted to hold Israel accountable for this, right? And the U.S. continued to block and veto all of these resolutions. And it will continue to do so until the pressure is felt to such an extreme degree that they will not be able to do it. They will not be able to do it. And it doesn't matter who the president is. We all know that movements and, and change only comes from huge mobilizations yeah. uh, that provide a popular front and that, to call for something like this. It doesn't come from the president. Um, yeah, it would have helped to have Bernie Sanders, but, you know, we're stuck with Joe Biden. And it doesn't matter even if Trump were in office. We could still liberate Palestine and the apartheid regime and the occupation with the people in this country. And that has to start with us linking these struggles together, getting involved in BDS, um, because Israel sure as hell knows it's coming. Why else would they have worked so hard to criminalize peaceful activism, to criminalize the constitutionally protected right of peaceful boycotts? They know that's what's gonna bring them down. It brought down Jim Crow apartheid here, and it brought down South African apartheid, and it's going to bring down Israeli apartheid. Abby, um, you very generously made your documentary available for everyone to watch um, without a paywall. That's we'll, Gaza Fights for Freedom. We'll leave we'll it in the it. video description box below. Oh, Everybody thank you. check it out. You but will not regret it. Where can people also support you in the um, incredibly important and fierce work that you're doing? Well, thank you, Crystal. I appreciate that. Uh, you can check out of course, GazaFightsForFreedom.com. We have Arabic and Spanish subtitles as well. You can buy uh, DVDs as well, download high-resolution copies of the movie. You could also just go to our Patreon. You know, we are living in a time, late-stage capitalism, where we need to directly fund and support the journalists that we want to see survive and thrive. We'll we leave that fight as the well algorithms. in the video description, Abby. So Thank you, you send Kyle, us that link. We'll put that in the video description right with um, Gaza Fights for Freedom. Thank you so much. And please support uh, shows like yours because this is, you know, we have to keep supporting each other. And we, I really, really appreciate the space and time. And thank you so much for checking out the movie, you guys. And thanks for caring about this issue. Uh, oh, we're so our, grateful our to pleasure. You, and everybody has to check out the documentary. It's out of this world. Again, yeah, I'll thanks. leave it right there. Just click it. Check it out. Yep, absolutely. Abby, thank you so much. We're so grateful. Thanks so much, you guys. Appreciate it. That is Abby Martin. And, um, Incredible, out of this world. She gets a lot of smears against her. Yeah. You know, the first they throw anti-Semitism left oh, and right. About oh, it. nonstop. And she's just like, hey, I just want Palestinians to have human rights and freedom and dignity. And it's really not asking that much. And uh, I really can't stress. I know I've plugged it 87 times already in this, but everybody has Watch to check that. out Gaza Fights for Freedom. You will not regret it. It's very, it's factual. But it also will make you feel all sorts of emotions for sure. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I can't handle, like, the babies. Mm -hmm. um, it's just, it's absolutely heartbreaking. And the other thing that I couldn't stop thinking about, too, in watching um, her documentary is, like, all of these 
journalists here who like cry about getting mean tweets oh. sent at them and whatever. I mean, Perry Weiss. Yeah, she <laughs> Sorry. went to Gaza and like was there getting that footage, like where people are just being mowed down. I mean, you watch it's it's very graphic. I mean, if you're gonna watch the documentary, which you should do, brace yourself for seeing people get shot in the head yeah. by Israeli snipers. Yep. I mean, she got that footage. And so, and I always think about this when we talk to Glenn as well, who like, you know, very much put his freedom and safety and security on the line to expose atrocities committed by some of the most powerful people on the planet. Like those are the people that are doing the real work who you should be going out of your way to support because you know, every media, every like social media platform is going to censor her and make it difficult for her to they get already the word did. out. There's You'll no... see in the Gaza fights for freedom, you click it, you have to click through because they say like, warning, this yeah, is careful. Like, don't, don't watch this. Please don't watch this. <laughs> right. All right. We got to click through if you want to watch it, but please don't. Yeah. It's right. Exactly. Things. Right. Yeah. I mean, you think there's a like fancy career waiting for her at MSNBC. Give me a break. And so this is why, and you know, the term grifter gets thrown around a lot as if Abby's views, views of people who really stand up against power are somehow in any way like a profitable thing to do. This is a woman who is incredibly fierce, incredibly, incredibly brave and actually doing the work just to show the basic humanity of other people who are sharing this planet with us. So we've made it a thing virtually every episode of the past three or four to talk about Barry Weiss. <laughs> there actually is a very good reason to talk about her. Did you see the thing that she wrote about Palestinians? Uh, so this blew up because, it, so I mean, bad. just she basically is like, well, I mean, part and parcel of Zionism, what are you going to do? It's, it's, it's tragic, but you have to kill some, you know, Palestinian kids. Like, it's, it's par for the course, basically. So she wrote that, and everybody went inski on her, and were like, ripping her to shreds and she's the exact example of what you're referring to now of like you have abby martin who did this documentary i mean the fact that she went to these places and it's very difficult to go to these places and you're putting yourself in danger if you go to these places she went there she got this footage she releases it all to get smeared relentlessly by these fucking asshole elitist so-called journalists in their ivory towers and then you have barry weiss who's you know sitting behind her computer screen fucking eating cheetos casually justifying ethnic cleansing well, and like one of those things is rewarded the barry weiss thing and one of those things is just totally looked down upon and that's when abby does real journalism right and it was even worse than how you described it. And of course, you pulled it up nice. Well, yeah, I pulled it, it up. I was looking for the exact quote um, that you were paraphrasing. But yeah, she says basically like this is the price of Zionism. I mean, just that's that's basically the view. And, and sadly, I think and based on what Abby's saying, too, that um, I think that is like the, the Netanyahu view is basically the center of Israeli politics now. Like, well. What are you going to do? You know, like it's un maybe unfortunate, but this is just what we have to do. But what made it even worse is that she somehow made the whole thing about her, about like how hard it was to be pregnant right now and have to oh, be yeah. defending oh. Israel. I mean, it just like that's again, the narcissism of making this conflict about you who are sitting safely 
here in America, able to write and think and do and live and have babies in any way that you see fit, which God bless you. I certainly I support that for you and I support it for Israelis and I certainly support it for Palestinians as well. I mean, she's so elitist. It, it drives me crazy how elitist she is. She thinks she's being brave. There are there's no set of facts that would get her to say, you know what? Palestinians are right on this one. No set of facts. Right. None. No matter what, it's always, bah, Israel's the victim, and let me defend Israel. Hey, if you kill children, I mean, what are you going to do? Sometimes you got to kill some children, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like well, that, and like, she's also the first one to be like, well, it's really complicated, and you just don't understand. It's like, actually, it's pretty morally, yes, there are lots of details. Morally, it's actually very clear. Right, the Michael Brooks video that yes, you made. Yes, 100%. the saddest part is she's probably still beating us on Substack. She's definitely still beating us that, on Substack. Okay, so That's number one, true. I want to cry. Number two... Here's what we're going to do, guys. See, we, we talked about this a little bit last week. Um, we're going to, we're going to, if you subscribe on Substack to Crystal Kyle and Friends, pay the $5 a month to get every video, then we are going to, you're going to get a, only for the paying subscribers, you're going to get an awesome behind the scenes video uh, of Crystal and I doing our thing at the studio. You'll get to see what a day in the life is sort of like, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, that's only for the paying subscribers, and instead of me committing seppuku, because I don't want to die. Uh, we decided the incentives were a little bit... little off. A little off on that one, yeah. But instead, you'll see behind-the-scenes stuff. We'll release an awesome video just for the paying subscribers, so maybe that'll help get us in front of Barry Weiss, you think? Like, what are the chances we get in front of Barry Weiss? See, that's the thing. We don't know how much she's in front of us. Well, we just know she's in front of us. She's, yeah. Like, two or three spots. But uh, yeah. how many how many subs do you need in those two or three spots uh, is yeah. the question. It's that's hard to say. Like, if we, let's say, say. let's say we get 100 subs, do you think that gets us in front of her? No. 200? I think we probably need a few thousand subs. A few thousand yeah. to get in front of Barry Weiss? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Seriously? I hate to break it to you, but the truth hurts. <laughs> we may have to I offer actually, something okay, but, better than No, but here's the thing. I, I, sort, <laughs> I sort of disagree with you. I feel like, if I think if we get 500, we are definitely going to be in front of her. I'll show you the smoking gun later that will disprove your theory on this. Really? So yeah. I thought Substack didn't have those in-depth analytics like that. I'll show you. Okay. Well, anyway. All right, guys. Listen. <laughs> no matter what, I think we need like 500. She's telling me we need more than that. Point is, fucking subscribe. We can't have somebody who advocates for literally, you know, doing ethnic cleansing of babies to be in front of us. I mean, that's just, that shows there's zero justice in the world. Indeed. Yes. Indeed. Um, last thing I'll say is just, look... First of all, reject this idea that, like, there's no understanding the conflict. Second of all, reject the idea that says, like, there's no changing the situation. And yes. I think... Defeatism um, doesn't help anybody I think except the establishment. That's one of the things I really appreciated about Abby's comments. And if anyone had justification to have a nihilistic view of um, what's going on for Palestinians, it would be Abby because she's she's seen it up close and personal. Mm -hmm. I mean, so if she believes that there's hope, you should believe that there's hope and that what it really requires, and it, it just is so clear, is that it is the American government that is enabling this ethnic cleansing. I mean, that is enabling these war crimes. I mean, directly funding and resupplying and providing cover for and blocking the UN resolution. So yeah, Joe Biden on this issue is a piece of shit. Like, 
always has been and continues to be. But even he felt some pressure this week. Even he recognized that he couldn't just run cover for Netanyahu indefinitely. And so that puts, look, it's not anything like what we would want to see or what Bernie Sanders would have done if he was in the White House. But even that puts some kind of a time limit on how long and how far Israel could ultimately go. So keep that pressure up, support BDS, reject this idea that it's, you've got to fight this idea and this narrative that it's anti-Semitic. No, this is the justified, this is the ethical, moral approach to fight what is an abhorrent, unconscionable apartheid situation in Israel. Um, so, you know, that's what I would say. And the, the one other piece of that that really struck me this week is uh, Politico Playbook had a quote from an unnamed pro-Israel Democrat in the House who said flat out, with regards to the Democratic base, we've lost the moral argument on Israel. And that is a huge, gigantic sea change. So there is that tiny ray of hope, as Abby said, Things seem impossible and, and intractable and like they can never change until they do. Yeah. And I think that's I think where that's we are. Perfect note to end on. All right, guys. Thanks so much for watching. Um, make sure you subscribe so you can get that awesome video and we can ultimately beat Barry Weiss, whether that takes a little bit of time or a lot of time. And we will <sighs> we see you with an amazing guest again next week. <laughs> <laughs>